Hi and welcome to Arrow Bandwidth, Big Data Edition. This week we're covering L3C's AI in Action event from the Royal Institute in London. This event had some fantastic customers, partners and vendors speaking. So sit back and enjoy. Good morning everybody. So uh, my talk today is all about AI in the wild. I want to talk to you about some of the, the projects that we've worked on. Um, very sort of philanthropic and outside of, outside of our sort of day-to-day -day life and roles. But I want to talk about our experience in, in deploying them, our experience and our sort of evolution of thinking in how we actually approach these real-world problems with AI. So very, very quickly, a little bit about me, because I always think it's quite nice to sort of know that the person you're talk who's talking to you hasn't just literally crawled the street and been asked to, uh, to have a quick chat. So, my name is David Fern. I work for Arrow Electronics. We are a distributor of um, semiconductors and discrete electrical components. We distribute um, enterprise computing solutions, with IBM being one of our biggest vendors globally, and, uh, and we're the world's largest IT recycling company as well. So we have a very broad business. We're a Fortune 150 company, um, and we have about 18,000 staff. And I essentially head up our global um, business unit that's essentially surrounded in uh, data intelligence. Last year, I made it into the most influential people in big data in the UK. So, I hope to think, hopefully I know what I'm talking about. And um, I'm the creator of what's called the Happiness Project, which I'll come on to in just a second. My specialist area is applied AI. So I'm not a mathematician, I'm a data scientist and a, and a computer scientist by trade, but I think I've I've got some, hopefully, some pearls of wisdom from stuff we've actually done that can help you to understand a little bit about our thinking and how we go about it. So, I'm going to give you three examples of things that we've done, um, interesting projects, part of our Arrow Labs, um, part of the business, which is really our sort of skunk works, cool things to do, you know, let's try and make Arrow look a little bit more like we're giving back to the community and doing cool things. Everything that I'm going to show you is open sourced. It's all on GitHub. I can give you the links later on. Um, you can go and see how we did it, what training data we used, our sort of various different data flows and pipelines and things like that, and, and look at it and contribute to it and help us do cool things in the future. So, without further ado. Oh, that doesn't come up very nicely. Anyway, meant to say London. So, the first project we worked on, um, how happy is London? So, essentially, my previous role to this was I was CTO of the UK and Ireland business. And um, the first thing I thought was, being a techie, the best way to describe a technology area is to try and do something that really showcases what you're trying to talk about. And I said, you know what, well, let's try and, let's try and do something really cool. So I had some friends in, um, in the city of London, uh, in the sort of organisation, they said, I'll tell you what, we, we predict the weather, we predict you know, traffic disruption, things like that but we don't really predict the happiness of our city. And I said, let's see if we can do that. So we created a platform that essentially took 2.4 billion data points every day, and, um, and we started in real time predicting the happiness of London. Once every minute, uh, we did micro-batch strategy, and uh, yeah, we were, we were able to actually predict based on social media, based on the weather, based on policing strategies, based on um, traffic conditions on varying different things, we're actually able to start to predict the happiness of London. We then went from just purely predicting point in time to being able to forecast the happiness of London, 
to be able to actually work with, we worked with a couple of universities through some hackathons to actually leverage our data and create um, essentially strategies that we could try and fundamentally improve the happiness of London. So we were able to say, you know, tomorrow it's going to be like this, but if we all go and do X or if we all walk through this particular route, then actually we can avoid the disruption or we can make ourselves happier before we get to work and that should fundamentally change the happiness of London. So it was a fun project, um, but what did we learn? And that's what I want to try and move on to on all of this. We started, um, started this project by trying to, and specifically our sort of AI element of this came in when we were doing the sentiment analysis on Twitter, which is if anyone, if any of you have done that, it's big, it's difficult, it's very, um, it's very challenging because lots of people use a lot of slang, a lot of sort of localized words, so it becomes quite complex. Not to mention Twitter pumps out a huge volume of data. So we started to try and um, use Hadoop, because that was the thing at the time. We're talking about 2015 when sort of AI machine learning was still very sort of specialist at the spark, it was very code heavy, very fragile, especially when you try to run it in production. Um, so we were using Hive and we were using some you know, Flume, we were moving the data around, trying to do cool things. But we spent all our time literally trying to keep the lights on, trying to keep our Hadoop cluster running, trying to keep it all sort of functional. We didn't spend any time on actually making sure that our predictions on people on the happiness of London or the sentiment analysis of Twitter was actually accurate because we just didn't have any time to do that. So we spent all our time literally tuning things and, and making sure that you know, our active and passive slaves and this, that and the other in the Hadoop platform was working. So we thought to ourselves, there must be a better way. So we started to work with IBM and their Watson division and they just released something called Bluemix. Um, brand new, and they said, we've got these APIs, they're in beta, but you can have a go. Try, try training them on, on Twitter data and feeding the data up to them and see if it comes back. And immediately we started to get significantly factors improved accuracy. And the most important thing was I didn't have to touch a server, I didn't have to mess around with anything. I just uploaded my training data, the same stuff that I'd collected and used essentially to, uh, to do my predictions in Hive, and I was able to immediately start to, start to get accurate answers. And then I could spend all my time and the team could spend all their time on just going, actually, do you know what? If we were to add this or, or change that phrase, or we can get much more accurate classifications. We completely shifted the way that we thought and the way that we did business from trying to keep basically focusing all our energy on stuff that wasn't actually helping to contribute to the project to focusing all of our energies into stuff that was contributing to the project. So I think it was Deloitte chap earlier on who said something that really resonated to me. Sometimes the simplest answer are the best. There's a lot of people who feel very um, proud of their infrastructure and proud of their big clusters and this, that, and the other. So we literally went from this 10 node, 20 node at one point, big Hadoop cluster, to one API call. And I'll tell you what, it was the best thing we ever did. Although it might not have looked as cool and given us quite the fancy dashboards that we had of all the different metrics that Hadoop was failing on, it gave us a much more accurate answer, and that was the most important thing. The other thing we learned whilst doing that project was the refinement of data is critical. So as I said, we were ingesting 2.4 billion data points every day. We didn't need 2.4 billion data points. We had to refine that down, so it was about 300,000 every couple of minutes, and we had to refine that down on a minute-by-minute -minute basis to one result. And I went back to one of the first ever conferences I went to, which was a, a data science conference and the keynote speaker was the chief data scientist at CERN. 
And he came up with this, he gave this fantastic talk. And the talk was, you think you've got big data, you don't know you're born. And, um, and he said, I've got three major problems with the Large Hadron Collider. He said, the first is that there's so much data comes off, there is no network that could actually transport that data, no switch infrastructure, no anything that could transport that data in any meaningful way back to a storage array to actually store it. But he said, let's just pretend that we've invented a network that does that. He said, then there's no storage array that can write that data in any meaningful way to disk fast enough for me to be able to keep up with this pace of the LHC. But let's imagine we've got past that problem. It would then take all the world's computing 100 years just to run through one cycle's data output. He said, so we had to start thinking about things differently. And, and this started to, this, this is a point that's really stuck with me throughout all the architectures, all the things we've ever designed and built for our customers and, and their end customers, is what we were trying to think, what we were thinking of was finding a needle in the haystack. Whereas what we wanted to do was burn the hay. So essentially, in real time, the solution they came up with was they basically, on every single sensor on the LHC, and this still exists to this day, they've got little microcontrollers, little Arduino-type microcontrollers. Onto that Arduino is based every single known physics, energy, magnetism that, is, that exists today. In real time, as the data comes off the LHC, it's filtered out. So they filter out all known physics in real time. But what that does is it burns the hay. It filters out all the stuff they already know. And it leaves them with highly refined data. So that actually what they end up saving back is about 300 terabytes, of which about 99% of that is errors. They can quite quickly do some AI to anomaly detect that. And they refine it down to something that can quite easily be distributed among all of the contributing universities. And they come up with the answers. And bingo, bango, they discover new particles. But the process, you know, before we get to the AI piece, what was really interesting there was actually unless we refine our data, unless we end up with really good quality training data, all of these clever algorithms go to waste. All of this GPU acceleration goes to waste. It's now becoming more and more and more well thought that domain-specific capabilities and the ability to produce super accurate and super highly refined training data is more important than picking the right algorithm. It's more important than accelerating it and trying to do it faster. Because the reality is what you're trying to go for with AI full stop is accuracy. And if you don't start with the right training, you don't end up with the right answer. So that was our first project and what we learned. The next one we worked on was um, a project with the Victim Support Organization. So a lot of you may know them. They are essentially an organization, a charity, that is based in the UK and, and basically comes into play every time um, there's a burglary, a robbing, a mugging, or domestic and child abuse. Now, this organization is a charity. Their whole IT department is four people. So going and actually doing anything particularly proactive with AI or anything like that is absolutely not going to happen. Not to mention that although they have access to the police, police records, health data, and um, hospital records, they don't actually have the money to employ the security to actually go and access this data unless it's printed off and handed to them in a really, really old-school fashion. So there is nothing they could do. So they turned around to us and said, look, the single biggest problem we have is when we are going into a situation with specifically domestic and, and child abuse, we're finding that abuse happens when it gets to the point where they can't take it anymore or there's some sort of external factor that sort of pumps them up 
They come to us. When they come to us, we start, we engage, we start to work with them. But then, sadly, about eight times out of ten, abuse will reoccur. The abuser may find out that actually this person has gone to the victim support organization, is trying to get out the cycle, and immediately they'll disappear off the grid. Now, we could go and re-intervene, but we would need some level of evidence to actually go and intervene. Because otherwise, we could be making it worse, they could be fine, we could, all sorts. Could you help, Arrow? And we said, well, yeah, because we thought about it differently. We decided that what we would do is we would basically go and look at the social profiles, because statistically, as we are talking about AI, statistically, um, a lot of, so upwards of 90% of the people who go into the victim support organization are prolific social media users. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, absolutely prolific. They put their entire life out on, Insta on, on these social networks. And actually, there's a lot of subtext, a lot of um, underlying sort of value in what they post. So we developed a piece of software for them. Once again, we open sourced this to them. We completely didn't charge them. It was very sort of us trying to give back, us trying to do something valuable to them. So essentially, what we created, what we call the social personality graph, and essentially what it was was every time someone comes into the, um, into the online platform of victim support, they log in with their social details, their Facebook password, their Twitter password. You, you've all used this. I'm sure you've all signed into some service and you've ticked some throwaway terms and conditions. Well, those terms and conditions are normally saying, can we look at your timeline? Can we go back as far as we want to go? Can we look at your friends? Can we look at all other information? Well, we use exactly the same mechanism to essentially go back pull off the last thousand Facebook posts, and essentially create the social personality graph. This gives us the ability to see pre-abuse, start of abuse, that downward spiral, the point at which victim, su victim support was actually engaged, and we can see an uptick often. But then after that, when those eight out of 10 times when re-abuse occurs, we then can see a physical sort of down spiral in their social personality graph, because we're still tracking them. We're still making sure, you know, still checking they're okay. And essentially what we can do is we give this report to the caseworker at Victim Support and say, look at this. Use this as a, as a way of going in and actually engaging with that person and saying, I know you're not okay, so actually shall we try a different methodology? Shall we try and do a different thing? We're essentially giving this information to the to the people that, that victim support to help them do their job better. And the nicest thing is, because it's a completely hosted system, it's using completely public data, we can deliver it really simply, we can deliver it really easily, and we can deliver it in near real time to the caseworker. So, what did we learn from this? Well, one of the things I learned was that we were trying, once again, so we, we took what we learned from doing How Happy's London, doing the social graphing there, but what we found was we had lots of spikes. When you start to look at really personalized data, you find you've got loads of spikes. People are really happy, people are really sad. And you couldn't, you needed to do anomaly detection. You needed to essentially turn around and say, how can I simplify this as much as possible? Um, so what we looked at was using another IBM Watson uh, service called uh, Personality Insights. And we're able to use that to actually normalize the data. So when someone had a birthday and they posted something really happy, and it made the graph look like, oh, actually, they should, they, they're okay. No, no, they're not okay, they've just got a very very sort of short period of happiness and that drops off again. Or when we saw massive dips because someone might have died, actually we can then turn around and say, well, that's actually because someone's died, not because they're going back into abuse cycles. So what we learned was that often one neural network is not quite enough. 
and actually we need to start stacking them together and almost passing the results of one into another into another to create these very highly refined outcomes. And doing that was, was not easy. Doing that was quite difficult. But once again, by leveraging the API sets that we found on IBM, it became just an enterprise data pipelining tool, uh, sort of discussion, rather than highly complex sort of moving data around. And it meant that we could do it really quickly, we could do it really easily, and we basically only needed to pay for what we used. So it was really, really nice. So the third project we worked on, and this is, um, this is one we are currently working on, um, is, uh, is basically every year IBM have something called Watson Build Challenge. So IBM's um, platform is called Watson, and um, every year they have something called the Watson Build Challenge, and the Watson Build Challenge is essentially their way of saying, give us some ideas for cool things that you want to build, build them, and then we'll figure out who's the best. Has to be AI-centric, AI has to leverage the Watson API subset, um, has to be something really innovative and cool. And last year was the first year they ran it, I believe. Um, this year, we've entered, we've actually put two entries in this year, so I'm running one of them, and I'd just like to basically take you through what it is. So, basically, we decided that we wanted to create something that would, once again, give back, and it's part of the whole, you know, as you can probably tell as a theme, you know, I'm quite into well-being, I'm quite interested to try and understand that sort of human-computer interface. How can we better help people through the implementation of advanced technologies? such as machine learning and AI. And this one is all about how can we give people their own personalized health forecast. So one of the biggest problems and the biggest limitations to this today has been the ability to take discrete, accurate um, measurements over time. And the second one has been about how do we actually take that information and process it at a large scale. So what we did was um, anyone who wears a Fitbit or any sort of heart rate monitor. One of the things this thing is doing, which is quite bleeding edge, with all due respect, because actually the research only came out last year to actually validate what we're trying to implement today, is um, this thing will measure your resting heart rate. And it's actually been proven now, scientifically, that resting heart rate is a fantastic indicator of not just when you are ill, but when you're about to be ill. Because you incubate viruses for up to two weeks before you actually get ill. So what we're doing is we're looking for essentially fluctuations in the resting heart rate to be able to then predict when you're going to get ill and forecast it and tell you in advance via a chatbot, hey, do you know what, next week you might be ill. And I'll tell you what, why don't you take it a bit easier or try and you know, eat healthier or drink less or all these different solutions. The whole purpose of this is so that we can try and cut down the impact that essentially flu and viruses has on, on you as working human beings who essentially don't want to get ill. Um, the idea behind it is that we can leverage uh, quite finite um, sort of neural networks to be able to do this. So what we've learned from the development of this so far has been that generative or sorry, generalized AI models aren't really appropriate to this particular solution. So what we've started to look at and the sort of the next generation of, of not just AI but the supporting technologies that go around AI are things like um, AI lifecycle uh, life management. How do we fully automate an individual, um, an AI model that's specific to a human being? How do we essentially provide self-improvement, self-testing? 
how do we take that AI model and basically say, actually, I've generated one that's more accurate. I need to swap them over. I need to put another one into production rather than that one. Everything we spoke about so far was all about general classification models, using a very generalist model to detect sentiment, using a very generalist model to detect and try and understand, um, classify someone's personality. But now what we're talking about is almost building digital twins, trying to digital twin a process, digital twin essentially someone's heart and someone's activity and try and predict on a very, very, very hyper-personal basis exactly what the future of that person looks like to a very specific end. And I suppose one of the things that we've learned from this is that life cycle management in AI is an incredibly difficult topic. Um, one of the things that I would advise, though, is that people think about how they're going to productionize AI. One of the things that we've learned from all of this is that when actually putting AI into production, it's an incredibly complex topic. When trying to lifecycle management AI, it's an incredibly complex topic. But if you don't do those two things, combined with what the chat from Deloitte was talking about, about auditing essentially how an AI does what it does, you aren't going to have a very effective model, you're not going to have a very effective AI, and you're not going to have a very effective set of answers, which is surely what we're all trying to get to. So that's me. I'm trying to give you some time back, I think. I think I'm under time. Awesome. Good. So if there's any questions, please uh, feel free.